Who shall speak for the Gaels but themselves, now that the Druids have gone the way of the Tuatha de Danann, surviving as confused simulacrums in a wasted reel of modern sensibilities? Who shall sing the songs of the Gaul, where few will carve the Orgum in living stone? Who shall listen to the trees, and for the language of the birds, where the race of Naimid is now dust? Will you, brother, speak for the Celt? I shall give my praise to this ancient race whose glories are now so long forgotten and buried in the eternal now. I will show my hand in friendship to my Celtic brethren, the Irish, Scotch, and Welsh. I have taken my wife from the daughters of the daughters of the sons of Mill, and my son, therefore, shall have more rights to the tartan than I, the eternal Anglo, ever shall. The Celts were dealt a hard hand. The exquisite mysteries and wonders maligned and discredited. The Irish adopted Christendom freely and with minimal bloodshed. The Druids, they said, saw something of the new Jesus in their Mavon and their enigmatic god Jesus, who appeared two hundred years before and in complete isolation from, we're told, the latter-day Christian savior. We know the Druids were accepted into the cloth along with the Bards and the Ovates. Could it be that they had the last laugh? When we look at Jesus Christos, how much of what we see is the one who claimed salvation is of the Jews, and how much of the god to end all gods was a last joke played by a rebellious and mischievous Celt? Their goodwill and faith was abused, for within five hundred years their myths had become parables and mockeries and jokes. The once proud Dachta showed his ass to the world an embarrassment. And what of their other gods, those majestic and otherworldly spectacles? Are they fodder for New Age fantasy? Are they now the saints who fill rivers with their feet in pretty little tears? As with all things, we must secure the gods of our Celtic brothers, so that our sons and daughters can have a future that isn't so grim and pathetic as the one that we're asked to carry on. So, come and sit a spell and hear about that which was lost, but not yet gone. It is a hard sale to make a claim which Celtic gods were prime. It is a strained ordeal to bring order to their pantheon. I cannot, for I have not the faculties. Though, I pray, brothers, you shall see as well as I the threads of fate woven so tightly through these gods of this noble race. I hope that you shall bind the knot with me and weave the corded rope of fate into a knotted noose to choke the disparity of this globalist hellscape with solidarity and true brotherhood, our arms shall lock like the knotwork of this ancient people. Now the gods were a sorted bunch. The Irish were given a genealogy and a table of the divine races. The Welsh must squint through a very Christian haze to see the ties to the Irish kin. The Gauls bequeathed their gods to Religio Romana, just as the Druids had shaken hands with the Pythagoreans. Thus is the Celtic pantheon an adventure in intricacy an adventure in syncretism. It is difficult to say which races claim what gods and what gods claim which races. We know that when the sons of Mill came to Ireland, that Amergan spit Ireland in twain. The hills and the outskirts and the dark woods went to Tewata, who gained dominion over the Shi and drove them underground, and the Milesians gained the fields and the light woods and became Irish. Where do the gods begin and end, and how much divine blood courses through the Gaelic race today? Answers beg more questions, 
nevertheless the gods themselves have delivered themselves to our care as they have sailed the crooked rivers of blood to reach us so let us begin tyrannus god of thunder carried the thunderbolt and wheel he was ever associated with the oak it was believed he was considered by the druids to be the father god given the connection of the druids to greece through the capitalization of pythagorean theory there is little wonder that this god would have acted as a bridge to zeus and given the presence of druidic schools in rome there is no less wonder that the romans saw him as similar to jupiter woefully little is said of him in the books that one can stalk upon their dusty little shelves Brigid is a goddess of the hearth. She has many names and many faces, and she has lived many lives. She was well known as one of Ireland's triple goddesses, those strange and wonderful entities who exist simultaneously in different forms, often in aspect of mother, maiden, and crone. Currently, she is known as a saint by her children, the Irish. In her hinterlands, Gaul and elsewhere, the Celts did roam. She was known as Brid and Brida in Scotland, and in Brittany she became Brigantia. Today there are nuns who keep a flame lit perpetually in honor of Saint Brigid. Why? Because she foster-mothered Jesus Christos, of course. Christ, you'll recall, was seen as an incarnation of Jesus or Mavon. This betrays Saint as goddess, for the goddess Brigid had a temple of the eternal flame. But light to the Celts was symbolic of much and many things. Brigid was also a steward of memory. The bards and ovates called upon her to, sell, to help them cite their lineage. To this end, she was a patroness of knowledge. Also, knowledge would have lent itself to skill for the Celts. She had been known as a goddess of the smith, devising metalworks and crafts. She was a patroness of poetry, considered the mystic art by the Gaels. She was associated with the cow which was in ancient days viewed as a sacred animal to the divine feminine. Her name Brigantia refers to brightness, as she was a solar goddess to the Gauls. Thus, her people, the Brigantes, were literally children of the sun. She was symbolic of the dawn, as she had been known to stand in opposition to the Kaliak, an awful wretched witch-hag who came, and at the fall would strike the ground with a hammer, rendering it as hard as iron. Brigid would prevail over the hag in the spring when she doused the land. This battle was replayed yearly. In Hebridean tradition, Brigid was believed to be a white goddess, and in her honor, effigies were fashioned, dressed in white, and invited in the homes over ritual song. There was a procession, we're told, of women girt only in woad that saw her into the home to be blessed. This was done in Oymelk, and men, we're told, were not permitted to see. Brigid shed the first tears to fall in Ireland when her son Ruadan, by Bress, was laid low by the Tuatha. Kalek was mentioned before as being in staunch opposition to Brigid the Dawn and Spring Goddess. Kalek, therefore, is the fall and evening. She represents the crone, the sort of goddess who utters dark prophecy and cackles. She smashes the ground with a hammer and turns the ground to iron, rendering it infertile for the season. She is not intrinsically evil. Her name means Veiled One, and some nuns to this day receive the title, those that have not thrown away their habits for the sake of ever-loving convenience. In Scotland, she is called the Blue Hag, perhaps a reference to the world. 
She is known to fly through the sky, hurling stones, which then become the towering mountains. She has also been called the Old Woman of Bera, and under this name fostered many children who would pass her in age, the grandchildren becoming the races and tribes. Next comes Ogmios. Now here was a god of eloquence. He was considered by the learned druids to be an aged Hercules. Ogmios carried a hallowed club. His tongue was pierced by glistening golden chains. These chains shot forth and fastened the words of the god to the ears of those who could hear his words. He had the power to bind and loose, and he could sway the souls of men. He is thought to have been a psychopomp, which makes great sense given the prevalence of poetry in the soul of the Gael. In Ireland, he was known as Ochma. Where it was known, he devised the writing system known as the Ogum. Ogmios had a nickname in the lands he loaded over, and this was Granus, and that meant sunface. A solar deity, as the sun was of such importance to the Gauls who had following in the not-so-fabled Via Herculaneum. It is known that the Gaels created a solstitial network that connected the Gauls to the sacred zones of their religion, where the sun pointed to zeniths, where the spirits soared. The Gauls followed the sun, and they carved roads which the Romans would later inherit. Would that we could feel what they felt and know what they knew, then perhaps we too might know the god of the sun. Cernunos is the wild god, he was associated with the stag, an animal totem of extreme spiritual significance to the tribes. As the lord of the wild hunt, Kanunos is thought to have led the souls of the dead to and from the underworld and the overworld. He himself tamed the serpents and excited the ram. He was friend to the hunter. More, he was looked to for purification, both of body and of soul, as nature strips away the dishonesties of civilized man and humbles the wicked. Some say that when Merlin worked his magic that he channeled Canunos. Canunos, at times, and in places like Ireland, was, some called, was sometimes called Hearn the Hunter. Maldron the Great Mudder. This was perhaps a title of honor, but we know that the name could be used and be borne by an ancestral goddess in Britain, and in time the Romans would call her Matrona as a title for their own goddesses. Her son was Mavon, the godchild, the divine son of light. It was he who ordered the creation of the animals, their names and stations. It was he whom the druids are Christos in, we are told. Many Ogham sites have been found in his name. In the north, in the realm of magic, he was called Mavonus, and was known as a skilled hero. Some say that he was of the same substance as the Irish Angus, Of course, he was related to Belenos, who is a god of the shining sky. His name crosses boundaries we might not expect, coming so close as to touching the heart of Baal, so far above and beside. He was a god of healing, and he may have been named Bladud in later days. Beltane is named for his honor, celebrating, or celebrated even now. He purified the waters and brought fire to the land, and lightning to the sky. Gofanon was called Gobnio by the Irish. He was smith to the gods, 
When the Tuatha de Danann waged eternal war against the Fomorians, the smith gave his oath that he should restore each weapon lost in battle to the Tuatha. In his honor, a feast was held in Emenavlach, in which pigs were slain. It is said that though the pig was flayed and eaten, it yet walked, and in the morning had skin again for the warriors to partake of. Many goddesses have many names, and here's one that's no different. Apona lives now in the name that she gave to the pony. Apona was the only Celtic goddess to be adopted into the official Roman cult. She was worshipped along with the gods of the deep. On her day, animals were given rest. She was shown with the key in the flag. The symbolism, which is strange to us, was clear to them. The flag begins the race, and the key unlocks the underworld. Apona is the goddess of the circuit of life. She travels with us on life's journey and shows us the door when we are dead. In Ireland, she has been called Itain and Maha. In Wales, she was seen as Rhiannon. The horse has always been a sacred animal, often associated with dreams. Indeed, the nightmare was such a steed that brought ill omens and dreams. One may choose to believe that Epona, the horse goddess, was her mistress. It takes a soothing hand to tame a horse, a natural soul, and it comes as no surprise that when Epona was connected to the birds, birds, we know, were connected to the spirit world. Now of Rhiannon, though, there is much to say. Once Rhiannon was pursued by a lover, and she was too fast for him. Hwil was the hero's name. She was tricked by an evil god and lost the baby resulting from her union with the hero. Her chambermaids betrayed her by smearing the miscarriage with dog blood and bone, claiming that she had eaten her own young. A terrible sacrilege. Rhiannon was stripped of her divinity and forced to tell the false tale of her alleged crime before carrying strangers on her back like a horse, a mockery of her divine agency. She was eventually exonerated and reunited with Quill. A love fated to fail, for mortals die in the blink of an eye before the gods. Mano Eden then took Rhiannon in the night, subsuming both her and her likeness upon a wave which drew her into the other world. There they were united in marriage, and Rhiannon once more became a goddess upon her throne. On another occasion, Rhiannon's birdsong called Bran to lose track of time. Those same birds can transport the souls of the dead and the men to the underworld. Rhiannon possesses a magical bag which contains infinite and endless space. Now, as Itain, she was a tragic goddess. In one tale, Itain falls in love and is married, but in so doing becomes mortal and forgets her past. In the end, she becomes a swan and flies away. Maha, as she was called in Ireland, was a goddess who had come to Ireland to marry a king. Her one decree was that none should know her breeding. She was betrayed, and her husband boasted that none could beat her in a race. By now pregnant, she was forced to race, and she cursed all those who heard her cries to suffer pregnancy pain like women. She had gained Connet through conquest, being a warrior queen but eventually would die of exhaustion in a manner similar to Lou's foster, Teltiu. Sulus is a goddess of the underworld. As Sul, she has been called the goddess of the eye of the sun. She brings curses and blessings. 
She was favored at springs, where she in turn gave favor. Her shrine was called Aquaesulis, and in the Roman occupation it was revealed that she and Minerva were of one substance. Now we come to Asus, enigmatic. He once slayed a great bull. He was also charged with the cutting down of special trees. We know little of him beyond reliefs in his honor, which were scattered upon altars of a late date in Celtic history. The Druids likened him, as with Mavon, to Christ, due to his connection to the Ewes, as it was believed in Celtic lands that Christ was crucified upon a cross hewn from you. Sukalos was the good striker. He carried a long-handled hammer. Some say Sukalos is a title, and that he is the Dachda in disguise. Coventina is the goddess of the well. Wells and springs hold great meaning. To this day, the concept of the wishing well is an idea that we owe the goddess, just as we owe it to her whenever we cast our lucky pennies into the deep well. Coventina reclines on a leaf and is sometimes accompanied by two women bearing pitchers who pour from beakers. Her cult was upheld by women, and by the Romans she was called Brocolita. Nemed is another goddess of antiquity. She was perhaps in Gaul known as Neamatoma, where she was presumed to be connected to the forest. Nematoma was believed by the Romans to be lied, uh, to be lain in betrothal to Mars, surnamed Reganematus. An entire race was named after her, and they were the third race to conquer Ireland. To this day, groves have been born in her name. Some ancients of days being called Nematoma. Nemed was the leader of this third race. Some say she ordered the plants and waged war against the Fomorians. There was a slaughter. The Fomorians utterly crushed the Nemedians and took Ireland. Only thirty of the race of Nemed were spared. Of these, some died in a futile rebellion. Precious few fled north, and the rest went to Greece, perhaps to become Druids. Danu is a goddess of great antiquity and mystery. Her name is spoken in countless place names. To this day, and she has seeded her tribes as far as Czechoslovakia to the east, and so far west as Iceland. This confirmed in ancient times. She is also called Anu and Don. Danu is what she was to the Irish, while the British called her Don. Don, we might recall, was a heavenly goddess. She sat upon a throne in her own constellation, Delisdon. It is possible that her offspring laid the Ogham down, even in the United States, for there the stones stand, forgotten cairn. The Danube bears her name, so we're told does the Dnieper and the Dniester, and of course the River Don. She was the great progenitrix of the Tuatha de Danan. The Tuatha, we know, were led by the great goddess from the north. The north, we know, was the point on the compass which governed magic and mystery. And so she sits, this goddess, on her shrouded throne, so veiled in mystery. Such is a veil one we mortals would love to pierce, if only to gaze at last upon her luscious beauty, whose radiance must have gleamed like the morning sun. On one occasion, Danu was compelled to show her power, whereupon she enchanted the very land to rise up as an armed host 
crush the enemies of Ireland. Such a goddess is one that we might enjoy who value blood and soil. Some believe that Brigitte herself is Danu in disguise, that the mantle of ancestral protectress passed from the continental Gauls into the British and onto the Irish. Dawn was perhaps the masculine answer to Danu. A concert, mayhap, a brother, maybe. Who can say when the record is so dimly lit by the aeons of dispersion? What is known is that Dawn was held to be the first ancestor in primal myth, a god that became man and died. How did this man die? He disrespected the goddess of the land, and in so doing became a lord of the underworld. See now, Don led the Milesians as their king, and made the mistake of insulting Eriu, the sovereign spirit of Ireland, by threatening to mistreat and destroy the vanquished Tuatha. He was given another chance, but was impetuous. Some say Eriu drowned him, others say he was struck down. What is known is that he was thrown to the underworld and compelled to shepherd it. It was in this form that he became equivalent to the Roman Dispater. It is said that he leads the wild hunt, that he controls the weather. It is also known that he may have built his kingdom within the island of Tekdun, which lay off of Ireland's coast, a perfect place for the souls of the dead to reside. However, before his apotheosis, Don was prophesied over by Iriu that neither he nor any of his would enjoy the island. All gales are invited to join him in death from now until the Morrigan's prophecy is fulfilled, and the world might end. Now, of course, we come to Erin, who is the titular goddess of Ireland, sometimes called Eriu. She was another of those potential triple goddesses, for three sisters were petitioned by Amergen to intervene in favor of the sons of Mill, and of them, Eriu answered. Her reward was to give her name to the island forever, and in accordance with the ancient occult laws of sovereignty, forever embody the spirit of Ireland, which she does to this day. Though she was powerful in her own right before, she gained the sovereign spirit by aiding Amergen, and also later through her condemnation of Don and her fading the Milesians who would go forth and become the Celtic race. Eriu, we are told, receives the sacrificial fire of Oisnech, which once contested with Tara for being Ireland's cultic heart. Surely a great honor. As Arianrod, the goddess appeared to the Welsh race, she gave birth to a hero, Lu, who was of a substance with Lu. A virgin mother, Arianrod, needed no man to give her divine son to the world. In her wisdom, Arianrod placed three divine seals upon her son, fearing that the terrible gay or magically restricted destiny that fate had laid upon him. He could not bear arms, nor take his name or his wife without her blessing, which she would not give for fear of losing her son. To trickery and the inviolable machinations of fate, Lou was allowed to break the seals. However, in the process, he would be mortally wounded, turned into an eagle, and then resurrected in lesser form. Arianrod, reigned in the north, as one would expect, a goddess of such sumptuous nature to do. Her realm was called Chaos City, 
and her name means goddess of the silver wheel. The silver wheel refers to the stars and the morning sky, which show the axis upon which the universe turns. As such, she had power to issue names, which we know from all occult science gives her extraordinary power over destiny. The goddess as Ariadne unraveled the mysteries of the universe and gave them to the poets, washed in language the commoner could never understand. She sometimes appeared as a mare, and was a goddess accustomed to moving the thread of fate. In this form, this guise, the goddess spoke to the Celts that had mixed with the Greeks to create the great race which harbored the Druids of such renown that they would impress Holy Rome, masters of the mystic art, who carved away tracts of Europe to follow the sun. The roads these Druids made are with us today. Do remember this, brother, when next you say Aaron Gobra. If Rome is the eternal city, she borrowed her eternity from the Gaulish roads that came before her, her chariots and her arms. Nuadu was once the king of the Tuatha de Dinan, a great and skilled warrior. However, during a terrible battle with the Fomorians, the ancient giants that had plagued Ireland before the Tuatha conquered, Nuadu lost a hand in battle. Because no maimed man could be king, he stepped down. He wandered about for a time, and eventually received a silver arm from Don Kiesht, the healer of the gods who could raise a warrior from the dead overnight. In time, Dian Kiesht would have a son, Mia, who grew up for, uh, who grew for Nuadu, an arm of flesh. No longer maimed, he returned to the kingship. But eventually, he stepped down of his own will in favor of the god Lu of the Talents. He is known to be in possession of a magical sword whose merest touch can cause mortal wounds. He also has been called Nodens, a god known to manipulate dreams and visions. He has a temple at Lydney, replete with chambers designed to encourage dreaming. In Wales, he was called Lut, and had privy to the vision of two great dragons waging war over Wales, who would be trapped in the island's heart, and fell to Lud a hero, to trap them and bury them. Lud also lent his name to London, where there remains to this day a place in his name, Ludgate. In war, he defeated an alien race and repelled them, saving the Celtic land. However, his geysa was that he would never repel the triumphant Sassanach, who is embodied by the great white-sleeved wyvern of legend, sealed with a red worm of Wales. He did, however, thwart giants from stealing the food of the Celts. The Darta is the good god. That, we are told, is the meaning of his name. He was called good because he tended to the weather and oversaw the harvests. The Darta, remember the name. Like many Celtic gods, he has more. It is suggested that Darta is more a title than a name. Some say that the Dagda is the title taken by Sukalos upon entering Ireland. He has also been called Eoched, meaning Allfather, and Ruach Rofessa, meaning the Red One of Perfect Knowledge. Being one perfect in knowledge was no small boast among gods who prized versatility. Having so many talents, it is no wonder that he became a chief deity. For the Dagda said to the Tuatha, what it takes all of you to do, I myself shall do alone. Indeed, such is his chiefdom 
that he is reckoned king of the Tuatati at Nan. Or rather, he was, before the sons of Mill drove them beneath the earth and into the fairy world of the Shi. Such were his talents that he, if he should choose, can swing his club and with a single stroke kill nine men, and, turning his club, bring those same nine men back to life. He has the power of life and death. His power, we know, comes from his possession of the great cauldron of plenty. We know that the cauldron is an allegory for bounty, and such bounty even turns death to life, as life turns to death. The warriors of the Celts were shown marching into death, pouring into the cauldron of rebirth, and emerging again on the other side, reborn. This cauldron of his not only replenished lost life, but fulfilled the living. Murias was the name of the cauldron. None could sup from it and hope to leave unsatisfied. The Dagda stirred his cauldron with a spoon so vast that a man and a woman could couple inside of it. The divine origin of spooning. Such was Dagda's hold. Now, the Dagda gains his poetic power over life and death. A god of life who bred Morrigan, the goddess of death. He beds her on the eve of Samhain. On another occasion, the Dagda wooed a Fomorian lass with such prowess that she turned her wiles against her own race, and thus helped seal the supremacy of the Tuatha de Danan over them for good. No doubt his mastery of music aided and abetting in his wooing, for he had a harp of four sides, which he used to strum the seasons of life and the world. He is known to quest with Lu and Ogma. Perhaps, excepting Brigid, the Morrigan is the most famous of the Celtic goddesses. Her name means Great Queen. Indeed, she is the Phantom Queen. It is she who pulls the threads of fate and washes away the destinies of men at the ford. She is the goddess of sex and death, of dark powers and portents. In addition to governing the fates of heroes and mortal men, she is said to rule in the underworld in a sisterhood of nine. It has been said that she is of such immense size that when she straddles the river for relief, it is by her that the rivers are filled. She has appeared to men with her beautiful hair split into nine free-flown tresses, indicating her sovereignty. Many Celtic lasses of marital age bound the hair, you'll understand. It is to she whom the Tuata came for knowledge to defeat the Fomorians, and she teaches them a magic called Eosdana, a magic to slay the giants. It is no surprise, therefore, that the Morrigan is who declares victory. She also prophesies as well, and she stirs up storms and punishes sin. Her familiar is the raven, and she herself has appeared to men in this black, sleek form. Such is her power that she can rob a man of his magical essence. This she does by causing him to break his gi, his restricted fate. So she did to Cucullin, sealing his doom. On another occasion, the goddess proclaimed the end of the world as following a tide of sin and debauchery. Like many of the Celtic goddesses expressed in Ireland, she was a triple goddess, at times appearing as a sensual maiden, a sweet mother, and a shrieking crone. Her trinitarian plural name is Morigna. She embodies, as all Celtic goddesses do, the feminine energy channeled by different stages of a woman's life cycle, bliss, temperance, and foreboding. She sometimes appears as Bav, 
meaning raven, a red-girt and red-haired lass, when she seeks to pursue heroes and stalk them. Bav is said to be partner to Net, a god of battle. She also comes as a friend while plotting the doom of a man in this form. The Morrigan has been likened to a dark goddess called Sheila Nagig, a crone. And it is possible that in this form the Morrigan appears to work winter magic. It has been suggested that she and the Kaliak are one. Later she would be known to come, or she would be come to known as Morgan, her divine origins muddled. Though it is known she was the prettiest of nine sisters. These same nine sisters provide inspiration to the souls of men, for they maintain a sacred flame and guard the cauldron of Anwin. Some say this Morgan, this same Morgan, is the famed Lady of the Lake, rising to the occasion for to shape heroes according to her wisdom. Morgan healed those who came to her in the other world and could fly like the witches of medieval fame. Arthur, it is said, remains in her care in the other world and will someday be released by her in a new form for a new time, the once and future king. Lou is the morning star who among the Romans would one day be called Lucifer and by silly superstition, later among others, called Satan. Lu, god of the morning light, was born of a virgin whose name was Lux to the Romans and Leus to the Northmen. He was a god from whom no darkness could hide, enlightened in all. There was no skill he could not master. So when he came to the court of the mighty Tuatha de Danan, he boasted that he could do all things their courtmasters could. So he deposed Noadu by right of superiority and skill, as the Irish took their kings on skill and not through blood. Thus he earned the name Samildanach, which, meaning one skilled in all trades, afforded him a great legacy and respect. Lu bore the great spear, which he used to slay the wickedest of giants, Baelor, thus securing Ireland for the Tuatha. Baelor of the evil eye was a fearsome foe who had lost his other eye, scalded from his skull, when he tried to sneakily observe druidic ritual to prepare the cauldron of knowledge. It was said that Baelor only opened his evil eye when he aimed to destroy, so Lu cast his spear as it opened and ensured that the tip emerged from the other side of his skull, painting the battlefield with brain and bone. It is said that the spirit of Baelor compelled Lu to decapitate him, as was the way of the Celt who well knew that the soul of a man lay in his brain, and to wear his skull as a mask and thus gain his power. Lu, it is said, denied him this, and so Baelor perished, his power wasted. Once Lu disguised himself as a crone, a harbinger of ill omen, to sow dissent among the Fomorians while boasting the spirits of the Tuatha. After Baelor was defeated, and the giants were driven from Ireland, their king, Press, was delivered to the Tuatha under Lu. They compelled him to reveal Fomorian agriculture and magic, and the giant agreed to ensure that the wheat would never fail, and that the cows would always give milk. Lu declined. This, he argued, would deny the law of nature. It is said that Lu, the god of light, was the first to receive the Orgum. He saw the sigils which warned of an attempted kidnap on his wife to Fairyland, 
The Argum told him to seek for her protection under the sacred birch. Even in the ages to come, when the Milesians, the Gaelic race, took Ireland from the gods, Lou remained and would sponsor mighty Cuchulain in a vision. Indeed, some believe that Cuchulain himself is an avatar of Lou. It went one day that Dechdin, the god, appeared to in a dream, and he told her that he had planned all that had come to this moment, and that the dead son she had fostered had indeed been his. What was more is that for recompense, he informed her that by the dream's end he would enter her womb and be changed, reborn to live life as a man called Satanta. Satanta, the good Gael knows, is Kukelan's given name. In another dream he appeared to Colm, who saw a forest of a house within a, within a forest of golden trees, where there they were seated a goddess on a crystal throne. Lou came to the house and told Colm, that from him a lineage of princes would arise. He proceeded to speak the name of all those who would follow until the end of time. A druid recorded the names on you staves, as Lu and Kon were served drinks and cups from a splendid vat. When Kon awoke and realized it had been a dream, he was stunned to see the cup and that the list remained. Such is Lu's power. Today he is remembered in the Falkish festival of Lunasa. This festival came in honor of his foster mother who died clearing Ireland for cultivation. Lou, the god, was known in Wales, though here he was only a hero come from the north, a mere man, a mortal. His mother tried to, to seal his fate, but through trickery he evaded this fate and instead sealed his doom. Forbidden from arms and lineage and marriage, he was eventually given a maiden, a maiden of the flowers, as his wife. Blodjoved was her name, and she betrayed him. In a sense, this myth represents a warrior of the earth coming into the Maiden of Nature as an esoteric wedding that was, in this case, never meant to be. Angus was a god of youthful energy. He was associated with poetry, lust, sex, and death. He is ever the youthful son of the doctor who sees Eileen, dream women in his sleep. Of these dreams, strongest was Evameth, whom he pursues in the form of what inspire later chivalric quests. He was seized with such longing for her that he could neither eat nor rest, and his dreams were taunted. He sought both mother and father, but it was the doctor who helped him. Such is Angus's love for the maiden, that he can tell her by her smell, in a crowd of a hundred and fifty more of the sweetest countenance. After this, he and his bride become swans and flock to the other world to dwell with a she, an enchanted love. He wins territory by cunning and determination, going so far as to impress Doctor with his cunning. In a challenge, Doctor had ceded land to all but young Angus, Mac Og. And cleverly, Angus asked to possess a land for a day and a night. Doctor conceded. And when the day and night ended, the doctor asked why uh, that Angus had not stepped aside. The answer was this. The day and the night are the opening and closing of the world, and all time is measured between sun and moon. Every night is an eternity. Thus the lands remained his. Mananan, a sea god, was often called Maclea. He has a chariot which follows his horses across the waves. 
He has appeared to warriors such as Cormac in dreams wearing bronze shoes. In some traditions, he has another name, Orsbien, who died after a hundred combats, which was understood that he has reincarnated this many times. Mananan is a night visitor who comes to women in distress at night and renders them with children. He is also known to send women back to heroes to entice them to their destinies, such as the hero Bran, whom he led to the timeless Isle of the Women. He was known to be a lord of Emen of Lach, the Island of Apples. He is a hall called Tirn of Falthorn, meaning the land under the waves, which is a palace with five rivers. These rivers, he explained in a vision to a man of great renown, were the five senses and their source. So, he blesses poets and gives prophecy to heroes. Often he comes to the land of mortals in disguise, such as one time he came as Finn. Maniwianan of Lear is likely what he was called in Wales. Caradvan was a mistress of dark prophecy. She is keeper of the cauldron. The cauldron, we know, is a symbol in the Celtic folk soul for death and rebirth. The cauldron, and thus Caradvan, also doled out wisdom and ecstasy, inspiration and knowledge. She was noted for her great stature. On one occasion, she punished her guardian, Gwyn, for stealing a taste of her wisdom. After pursuing him viciously, she savaged him and then ate him alive, and, holding his remains in her great belly, eventually gave birth to Taliesin. Taliesin, you might know, was a lord of poetry famed in Wales. She is thus a goddess of transformation. Tlachta is a goddess who bears the thunderbolt in the shape of a spear. She is the daughter of a druid, and she erected a pillar called Kanamkel, which kills all that touch it, blinds all that see it, and deafen all that hear it. She gives her name to a hill of the ward, where it is said that the Samhain fires are lit. She is the sovereign of Munster, where it is said witches excelled in magic. When her fire was lit, offerings were made to the ancestors in her name on Samhain against the South. Skoark is a goddess after whom the Isle of Skye is named. She is a fierce warrior queen who has been known to take on lovers and tutor them in the art of war. Her name means shadow, and she is capable of scrying the future, which she did for Kukelin. We come to the end of it, and we come to famous heroes who were perhaps not heroes at all, but merely gods in disguise. Now Merlin is far older than we might think. In Wales, he was known as Myrdan. By the time we know him best, he had come to be known as a druid, a seer, and a prophet. It is said that he was born of a virgin by some, and by others that he is the devil's own son. Often guided by a feminine figure, Merlin possesses insights into the laws of nature, seemingly unrivaled. Some believe he was tutored by Taliesin. He was known to have had a pet pig. Pigs, we might recall, were of a special importance to the Tuatha. He was wed to one Gwendolina, a flower maiden, an unearthly lass. On special occasions, Merlin was known to dress in the guise of a stag, covered in furs and horns. 
In this guise, he summoned beasts, betraying his shamanic past. Some believe that when he does this, he channels the spirit of the god Kununos. On another occasion, Merlin helped Arthur hunt the great boar. Britain was once referred to as Merlin's enclosure. Using his arcane arts, Merlin helped the wounded Arthur at Avalon later, almost surely a symbolic gesture. In another tale, Merlin himself was known to be so old that he had outlived the oldest animals after Jove flooded the earth, according to the Old Testament. And we come to this at last, Arthur, among the most famous artifacts of Celtic history. Now, Arthur was a hero of great renown, embedded in the European psyche. He was once a hero to the Celts, and in much likelihood, a god come into human flesh. The name Arthur comes from Artos and Arturus, both of which were antiquated terms referring to the bear. The bear, we know, was a shamanic totem of vast importance to the early, the early Europeans. It was of especial importance to the warrior tribes. So the medieval chivalric legend is betrayed by his name and his deeds. Arthur, we know, led his men, his war band, on a raid that led them into the very heart of the underworld, a deed fit for a god, no? On another occasion, he hunts a great boar, itself reminiscent of the ancient rites, and frees Mavon, the god of light, from captivity. This mythopoeic essence suggests a passion play in which the hero, the warrior god, frees the god of light and allows joy to return to the land. A prevalent theme among our races. And where was Arthur taken when he was wounded? To Avalon. Avalon was once called Amen Avach, the land of the apples. Such islands, we know, were stepping stones between worlds, and Emain of Lach appears to be a realm in which one attains immortality. Arthur returned to the Ether to be healed, as the gods once returned to the other world to change their shapes and bodies. Is there any wonder, then, that we should see the heroic Arthur heralded by the shamanic Merlin? Merlin, the aged spirit of the old European shaman, sees Arthur, the great bear, rise to power, a promise we must recall was given that Arthur should return again in Britannia's time of need. Hence, so we wait, as we always have, for our hero, such a one or another, to come. And so we come to it, the end of our little ditty on the Celtic gods and goddesses. Hopefully you have enjoyed listening, and hopefully this will change your opinion of the Celtic peoples, and make you think twice before you drink the green beer on Plastic Patty's Day. Now... I'm going back to my books and I'll see you for the next one.